So this morning is the first in our third series on some of the big questions of life and what the Bible and Christianity has to say about them. And you may know that we're in the middle of an Alpha course right now, and so we've been inviting people to fill in cards with their questions. And one question that keeps coming up is, why is there suffering in the world? Why does God allow it? Why doesn't he do something about it? So that's what I want to kick off this series with this morning. Why do bad things happen? And in particular, why do bad things happen to good people? Because we can kind of understand how bad things might happen to bad people because to some extent it fits in with our ideas of justice. Most movies have goodies and baddies, don't they? And we all kind of feel that justice is being done when the baddie gets his comeuppance, even if he meets a gruesome end. And that's because we tend to think that bad things happen to bad people for a reason, that there must be some kind of cause and effect going on, that clearly bad people deserve it in some way. But the very opposite is true when we see bad things happening to good people. That doesn't seem fair or just because they don't deserve it. So justice and fairness seem to suggest that only good things should happen to good people. And as Christians, we can sometimes tie ourselves up in knots on this when we say that God is in control because it's pretty difficult for us to claim that God's in control in relation to all the good things that happen but that he isn't in control in relation to any of the bad things. But if God is good and fair and just, and if God is in control, then why doesn't he stop bad things happening? Because if he is God, then it kind of feels like he ought to. So why doesn't he? Surely, if there is a God, then he could. So he should. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Another problem is that when bad things happen, it makes us wonder whether we've done something to deserve it. Have you ever heard someone say that? Because in an age of science, we tend to assume that everything happens for a reason, that every effect has a cause. And if God is the ultimate cause of everything, if God is ultimately in control, then surely he must be behind it. Or... He doesn't love me, because if he did love me, then he would have stopped it happening. So when bad things happen in our lives, that's very often people's reaction. Now, the thing about these big questions, the reason that they're called that, is because they're difficult questions. And we know that difficult questions usually don't have easy answers. So we don't do ourselves any favors as Christians when we pretend otherwise. We mean well, of course, but it's because we think that for Christianity to be credible, we have to have an answer to everything. And because we honor the Bible as God's word to us, that somehow it must have God's answer to everything. So we just have to find it in there somewhere. But you know, the reason that we think like that may have more to do with the fact that we live in an age of science, where everything to do with how things work and why things happen is assumed to be knowable, or it should be knowable. So we instinctively feel that for there to be any element of mystery involved somehow undermines the Christian faith. 
because to this scientific way of thinking, mystery equals a flaw in our knowledge or an excuse for not knowing things that we ought to know. But I'll be very honest with you this morning in in doing this talk, I'm not convinced that there is any easy answer to this question. If Lynn and I look at our own lives, for example, they've been a mixture of good things and bad things where we don't know the answer why. Why did we have a son who is disabled? I don't know. Why did we have a grandson who died three weeks after he was born? I don't know. Why did Lynn's grandmother die peacefully at the age of 96 when her sister died painfully at the age of 40? I don't know. Why was my father miraculously healed of polio as a child when a man came up to my grandparents on a Cumbrian beach and said, if you take your son into the water now, Jesus will heal him? And he did. Why did my father never tell me that story before he died? My aunt told me years later, just before she died. And why did I have a stroke on the Saturday evening before our very first Sunday leading Aylesbury Vineyard five years ago? Why did I survive it when lots of other people have strokes and don't survive? I don't know. I sometimes say to people that the bit of my brain that was damaged by the stroke is the bit where I keep my jokes. (laughs) So remember that, please, when you decide not to laugh at them. But joking aside, we do tend to assume, don't we, that there must be one single good answer, one silver bullet to this question. The modern scientific way of thinking tells us there must be an answer because ultimately everything is knowable. So our Christian credibility depends on us having a compelling answer for people. But I'm not so sure that that is the case. Maybe sometimes we do more harm for the gospel by saying that we do than by admitting that we don't. Because the danger is that our well-meaning attempts to come up with a good answer can end up sounding like a glib answer. Now this uh, modern way of thinking in this age of science that we live in has reigned supreme in the Western world for the last 300 years or so. And it's a way of thinking that's called foundationalism. And that assumes that in every area of knowledge there is one foundational truth, one most basic factual answer to any question. And that everything else we know on a subject is then built on the foundation of that. But when it comes to why bad things happen, I'm not so sure that there is one single foundational reason. Because some of it is a mystery. But the age of science is all about eliminating mystery. And without realizing it, Christians have bought into that way of thinking. But maybe God has embedded mystery and uh, in, in some of life's big questions, in the answers to some of those questions. Maybe God says to us, I'll show you parts of the answer, but I'm asking you to trust me for parts of it too. So instead of picturing how we know what we know, like the structure of a building, maybe we ought to think of it more like the structure of a spider's web, with multiple foundations, multiple points which support that structure, all of which contribute something to the answer. 
In other words, there are answers to everything that happens, but this side of eternity, we will only ever grasp a few of them. God helps us to see some parts of the answer to some parts of the question, but he asks us to leave the rest of it in his hands. So this morning, I'd like to just share with you quickly five thoughts that I hope you might find helpful. Five things that, to me personally, are parts of an answer. Now, before I do that, let me just start by saying that we live in a world where things are not as they should be and people are not as they should be. We're part of a world that has been knocked off kilter. And if you look that up in a dictionary, it will tell you that knocked off kilter means a bit askew, not in perfect balance, out of order, and not working as it was supposed to. In other words, that something is not right. Things are not as they should be, and people are not as they should be. And another way of putting it would be to say that to some extent, we are all broken people living in a broken world. Sometimes we're victims of that, and sometimes we're part of the cause of that. The book of Genesis, which is the very first book in the Bible, and Genesis means in the beginning, Genesis gives us a theological explanation of some of the reasons why that is so. It's not a scientific explanation, so don't read Genesis looking for science, otherwise you'll be disappointed, but a theological explanation. Not how, but why, and where God fits in. And again, we'll look at that in a bit more detail next week when we look at how to make sense of the Bible. But when we ask God why bad things happen, we have to accept that sometimes we are part of the problem. We shouldn't blame God for the fact that millions are starving when the world that God made is easily able to produce more than enough to feed everyone. One of the downsides of God having created us with free will, the freedom to make choices, is that it allows us to make bad choices, including the choice to live our lives selfishly, whether we choose to take any notice of God or not in how we live. And as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, we don't fix things just by getting rid of all the really bad people. Because the line between good and bad doesn't run between groups of people, us and them. It runs through each of us. And over time, that line moves around. So again, we'll talk a bit more about that next week. So here are five quick thoughts when bad things happen and how we can cope when they do. Five things that for me personally are part of an answer. And as I go through them, I don't expect them all to be persuasive. You may think that some of them are trite, you may think some are trivial, and you may think that some of them are just plain wrong. And that's fine. But I hope you'll find some of them a bit helpful. So thought number one. The why question is not a new one people in the Bible ask the same question. If the Bible says it's okay to have questions about why bad things happen, why God allows them, and where God is when they do, then clearly we are allowed to ask them as well. One of the longest books in the Bible is the book of Job, and it's about nothing but those questions. 
about one-third of the Psalms. The Psalms is the book of poems and songs of the Old Testament. About one-third of those are cries of the heart that come from anguish and pain and asking God why. They're called laments. And there's even a book in the Bible called Lamentations. Let me give you an example from the Psalms. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction. I am the utter contempt of my neighbours. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. And the person who's saying this is the mighty King David who slew Goliath, whose story we use as a metaphor for overcoming giants in our lives that I spoke about the other week. So it's okay to respond to what happens in life with normal human emotions. We're not supposed to deny the reality. Feeling grief and responding emotionally is in no way a lack of spirituality. You're not letting God down. You're not a bad person or a bad Christian when you feel that way. It's part of being authentically human. And Jesus, of course, is our example in that. Because as well as being fully God, he also was fully human. In the lead up to the cross, the Bible says that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled overwhelmed with sorrow. The shortest verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty five, and that says simply, Jesus wept. And the reason he wept was because his friend had died. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he hadn't, of course, because God has never forsaken anyone. But it felt like that because Jesus was authentically human as well as authentically God. And it's natural for us to feel like that ourselves at times. So let's not deny the reality, but let's find Jesus in the reality, because he understands how it feels. Thought number two, even though bad things are never good, and they're never God, he can make them work together for good. There's a big difference between saying God causes bad things and saying God can turn bad things around and make good come out of them. Romans 8, 28, very famous verse. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And notice that it doesn't say that all things are good in themselves, because they're not. It says that in all things God is working for our good. So we need to just keep on loving him, keep on inviting him into our situations, keep on trusting him to do that. So we need to say, come Holy Spirit into my hurt and my suffering and my wondering why and even into my doubting. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything, a time to weep weep, as well as a time to laugh, a time to mourn, as well as a time to dance. So when bad things happen, we're allowed to weep and mourn because there's a time for it. So allow those tears to come. But at the same time, allow God to come and allow him to start to turn things around. 
Psalm 30 says, you've turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. That's what he wants to do for us. But give him time. Thought number three, we have a choice as to how we respond when bad things happen. It's like we're reaching a junction in the road and we have to decide which way we're going to turn. Are we going to turn to bitterness and anger and turn away from Jesus because he has allowed it to happen? Or are we going to turn to him? Are we going to fill in the gaps in what we don't understand with trust and faith in what God is like? That he does love us and does care for us and that he does feel our pain. That verse that we read a moment ago, the writer is the Apostle Paul and when he says, I know that in all things God is working for my good, you may wonder, well, how does he know that? And the fact is he doesn't know it. He only knows it by faith. He knows it because the Bible says it and he's chosen to believe it. He's chosen to hang on to it when bad things happen. Does anyone apart from me like detective dramas? Whodunits? Yeah, very good. But let me tell you this. Box sets are no friend of the gospel. (laughs) They are way too tempting. Anyway, there is this uh, classic story in which the detective is investigating something really bad that's happened. And he's faced with a dilemma. Because all of the evidence so far makes everyone assume that a certain person must have been responsible. But the detective knows that person so well, he's convinced in his heart that his friend couldn't possibly have done it. There must be more to it, other information that he hasn't yet discovered. So he keeps asking questions, he keeps working at it, and he keeps trusting in what he knows his friend is really like. And eventually, what did happen and why all comes to light and all starts to make sense. That friend who he always believed the best of from the very start was proven not to have done it. So the question is this, when bad things happen in our lives, do we have that kind of faith? Do we know our friend that well? Well enough to be able to say, we don't have all the information yet, not in this life but we do know that God couldn't possibly have done it because that's not what he's like. Thought number four, we need to work backwards from the future to the present. Now that sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But what I mean is we have to look to the end of the story to make sense of the place in the story that we're at right now. It's what's called in the trade an eschatological perspective. That's our big word of the day that you didn't particularly want to know, but I've told you anyway. And eschatological simply means to do with the end times. So it means looking backwards from how everything is going to end to make sense of what's happening now. So in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He's not trivialising our suffering. He can only say that because he's looking backwards from the perspective of eternity. 
And in Revelation 21, we see a prophetic glimpse of how things will be in that future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And this old order of things is death, mourning, crying, and pain. And you know, we can't see God in the old order of things except through eyes of faith. Because in the old order of things, he's invisible. But in the new order of things, we will see him because God will dwell with us. And he personally will wipe every tear from our eyes. With all eternity to look forward to, our short life here on earth pales into insignificance, even though it's all we can see right now. So it's understandable how it fills our thoughts. But only the future ultimately makes sense of the present. And then finally, thought number five. In Jesus, God himself came to personally experience the bad things that happen in our world. So why would he do that? No other religion that I know of believes in a God who would lower himself to do that. Every other religion thinks it's a stupid idea. The author, Dorothy Sayers, says this, Whatever reason God chose to make people as they are, suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He himself has gone through the whole human experience, from family life and hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. You see, Jesus didn't come into our world to share in our humanity as a gesture. He came into our world to share in our suffering as one of us. And if you will forgive the starkness of this analogy, at least it's memorable, even if it's a bit stark, it's a bit like the egg and bacon breakfast. In the egg and bacon breakfast, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. And when Jesus became one with the creation to experience what human life was really like from the inside so that no one could ever say you wouldn't know what it's like to be me, he didn't come just to be involved. He came to be committed. Now Israel was experiencing a lot of suffering at that time, not least because it was occupied by the Roman legions. And everyone was asking, what have we done to deserve this? Why doesn't God do something about it? Doesn't he love us? So their hope and their expectation and their prayer was for a Messiah like King David, who would lead an army and deliver them from the Romans. But this was the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be, as described by the prophet Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised 
and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, the cross was not about God telling us the kind of things to believe, but showing us what kind of God it is that we believe in. One who took our pain and bore our suffering. By his wounds we are healed. So somehow, mysteriously, the suffering of the cross is a place of healing. Our healing comes from his wounding. If you remember, remember the uh, Christmas story, it says that one of the names that Jesus would be given is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he's not a God who's just up there somewhere sending instructions from heaven. He's the God who came to be God with us down here. And not only that, it wasn't just like a, a royal visit where you might get to meet the queen once in your life and then she goes back to Buckingham Palace and you never see or hear from her again. Jesus said in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will send you another comforter to be with you forever, the Holy Spirit. And another comforter also means another helper, another advocate, another companion or another friend. It means another just like him, just like Jesus. So instead of the physical presence of God in the person of Jesus, we now have the spiritual presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit who brings Jesus into our lives and experience because, of course, God is one. And that is how he fulfills the Bible's promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. And I, I think it's no accident that the very last verse of the very last chapter of the story of Jesus' life written by Matthew that we call Matthew's Gospel, the very last thing that Jesus says is I will be with you always to the very end of the age, which of course he does through the Holy Spirit. So here's a quick recap on those five thoughts. Number one, the why question is not a new one. People in the Bible ask the same question. So it's totally okay for us to ask it as well. We are not supposed to deny reality. We're invited to find Jesus in the reality. He understands because he's been there. But we shouldn't be looking for one simple answer that will explain everything to a very complex question. One day we will know. Just like one day the scientists will probably know how to cure the common cold. But at the moment, they're both a mystery that's a bit beyond us. Number two, bad things are never good and they're never God. But he can make them work together for good. So invite him to do that. Say, come Holy Spirit into my suffering and I invite you to turn it around. I invite you to be my comforter, my advocate, my helper, and my friend, who will never leave me or forsake me, who will be with me forever. Number three, we have a choice how we respond when bad things happen. Do we blame God for it? Why did you let this happen? Or do we trust our friend that he couldn't possibly have done it because we know him too well? Do we fill in the gaps with what we don't understand, those 
unanswered questions with trust and faith instead of bitterness and anger. Number four, we need to work backwards from the future to the present. We need to focus our eyes on the end of the story in order to make sense of the place that we're at right now in the story. We can't make sense of the present, however, without an eternal perspective. And then last, but by no means least, in Jesus, God himself came to personally experience the bad things that happen in our world. We worship a God of whom it can never be said you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't know what it's like. You wouldn't know what it's like to be me and to have to live my life because he does. Jess, maybe I could invite you to come back if you're here. Thanks. Just as the guys come back, we're going to close with a a final song together, but just as they come up, let me just um, tell you something that I think all of these five thoughts have in common. They're all inviting us to make a decision. They're all inviting us to make a choice, which is basically to trust God rather than to blame God. When we can't see God in it, in what's happening in our life, they invite us to live by faith, not by sight. Because when bad things happen, that is the time to live by faithfulness to what we believe and by faithfulness to the one in whom we believe in spite of what we see. So if you're going through stuff this morning, don't need to tell us what it is, but if you're going through stuff this morning, why don't we invite him in to where we're at? Why don't we invite him in to what we're experiencing? Why don't we say, come Holy Spirit and be with me in what I'm experiencing, in my suffering, in my challenges and my questions? I invite you to come and be with me.